Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 7 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing the Bosnian War of the 1990s. This is Episode 7-14, Bosnia and Srebrenica. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Former President Jimmy Carter negotiates a four-month ceasefire in Bosnia. Croatian President Franjo Tuđman makes it clear he intends to resume the war against the Serbs. When the ceasefire ends, all parties go back to fighting. In early July 1995, the Serbs close in on Srebrenica. And with that, let's discuss the Srebrenica Massacre. Srebrenica The first time Srebrenica fell to the Serbs was in 1992. But first, a little backstory. Before the war, Srebrenica was 73% Muslim and 25% Serb. However, tensions between the two groups increased in the early 90s as Yugoslavia began to fracture. The JNA added to the tension by arming local Serb paramilitary groups. The war began in March 1992 when the Republic of Bosnia-Herzegovina declared independence from Yugoslavia. For the next three months, the Bosnian Serbs, supported by the JNA, captured most of the territory surrounding Srebrenica. During this campaign, the Serbs destroyed 296 Bosniak villages, killed 3,166 Bosniak people, and displaced nearly 70,000 Bosniaks from their homes. Most of the victims were women, children, and the elderly. One of these towns was Bratunac, just five miles up the road from Srebrenica. When the Bosnian Serbs began their onslaught, the Muslim survivors of Bratunac fled to Srebrenica. At least 1,156 Bosniaks were killed in Bratunac. As discussed in episode 10 of this series, thousands of Bosniaks were killed in the early months of the war as the Serbs consolidated their hold on the region. Foča, Zvornik, and Snagovo were all trampled as the Serbs rampaged through eastern Bosnia. In doing so, Srebrenica was soon isolated. The Muslim enclave took in thousands of refugees even as the Serbs prepared to invade. And by the end of April 1992, the Serbs had captured Srebrenica. But a few weeks later, Bosnian government forces, led by Nasser Oric, freed Srebrenica from the Serbs. Despite this victory, the city was still surrounded by Serbs and Serb-held territory and cut off from other parts of Bosnia. Nonetheless, for the remainder of the year, the Bosniak forces in Srebrenica fought to increase their territory and establish a link with the government in Sarajevo. And by January 1993, they had managed to connect with Jepa and Sherska about 18 miles south and 15 miles west, respectively. This marked the furthest extent of the Srebrenica enclave. Nasser Oric never made that connection with Sarajevo or even Tuzla. The enclave was very large now, covering nearly 900 square kilometers or 350 square miles. 
but this did not last long. The Serbs began a counteroffensive over the next several months, drastically reducing the enclave's size. The Serbs captured the villages of Konjevic, Polje, and Sherska. Then they cut the connection between Srebrenica and Jepa. The Muslim enclave shrunk down to only 150 kilometers, while thousands of refugees continued to pour in. Before long, Srebrenica housed nearly 60,000 Bosniak refugees. When Srebrenica was isolated once again, the Serbs began shelling the enclave. With tens of thousands of refugees and no way to get food or medicine, the conditions within Srebrenica were horrible. Anyone who ventured out their homes risked being killed by Serb artillery. It was too dangerous to retrieve the bodies of those who were killed, so they were left in the streets. Dogs and other animals, also near starvation, fed off these bodies. This was not an unfortunate tragedy of war. The Bosnian Serbs were deliberately using hunger as a weapon against the Muslim civilian population of Srebrenica. A Serb soldier later described how this strategy worked. It was almost like a game, a cat and mouse hunt. But of course we greatly outnumbered the Muslims, so in almost all cases, we were the hunters and they were the prey. We needed them to surrender, but how do you get someone to surrender in a war like this? You starve them to death. So very quickly we realized that it wasn't really weapons being smuggled into Srebrenica that we should worry about, but food. They were truly starving in there so they would send people out to steal cattle or gather crops, and our job was to find and kill them. No prisoners. Well, yes, if we thought they had useful information, we might keep them alive until we got it out of them, but in the end, no prisoners. The local people became quite indignant, so sometimes we would keep someone alive to hand over to them just to keep them happy. British journalist and ABC News correspondent Tony Burtley snuck inside Srebrenica in March 1993. He filmed the residents of Srebrenica near starvation, waiting for American planes to drop pallets of MREs, meals ready to eat. When the food dropped, the Bosniaks, most of whom were indeed elderly men and women, scrambled in the dark to grab whatever they could. The food drops had to be done at night to prevent the Serbs from targeting the civilians. Tony Bertley was also there on March 11, 1993, when French General Philippe Morillon, commander of UNPROFOR, arrived in Srebrenica with a UN convoy full of supplies. In order to get there, he bribed and lied his way past Serb patrols and blockades but he managed to make it through and brought some relief to the starving people of Srebrenica. General Morillon only intended to deliver the food, get a look at the situation in Srebrenica, then leave. However, when he tried to leave, hundreds of desperate Bosniaks surrounded his APC, begging him to stay. General Morillon relented. He raised the UN flag over the local post office and told the gathered crowd, I will never abandon you. Two days later, he abandoned Srebrenica. To his credit, Philippe Morillon came to Srebrenica at great risk to himself and without approval from his superiors at the UN. And once he returned to Sarajevo, he was quietly punished for taking this initiative and fired as UN commander in Bosnia. 
But for the short period Morillon was there, the shelling stopped and food and supplies flowed into the enclave. The Serbs were not so audacious to attack a city where the UN commander resided. Once he was gone, the Serbs picked up right where they left off. The shelling of Srebrenica immediately resumed. During this barrage, they killed over 50 Bosniaks in less than an hour, most of them children playing in a schoolyard. If nothing else, Morillon's visit to Srebrenica did have some influence on the UN. On April 16, 1993, the Security Council passed Resolution 819, which declared the Srebrenica enclave a safe area. The exact words of the resolution stated, All parties, and others concerned, treat Srebrenica and its surroundings as a safe area, which should be free from any armed attack or any other hostile act. Twenty months later, in January 1995, during Jimmy Carter's ceasefire, a Dutch battalion of UN peacekeepers arrived to protect Srebrenica. Their fancy weapons and armaments looked impressive, and there was hope that the Serbs, Bosniaks, and Croats would work out a peace deal. With the UN forces now in Srebrenica, the Bosnian government needed Nasser Oric elsewhere. He left behind a small Muslim force, perhaps hoping things would get better in Srebrenica now that the UN peacekeepers were there. Of course, as we know from the previous episode, that did not happen. As winter turned to spring and the ice thawed, tensions escalated between the Serbs and the Muslims. By the time the ceasefire expired on May 1, 1995, nobody was talking peace except the UN and nobody took them seriously. The Serbs launched a major offensive to capture the remaining Muslim enclaves in the east and end the war before the next winter. But the Bosniaks and Croats had signed an agreement ending hostilities between them and were now working together against the Serbs. Furthermore, the Bosniaks had somehow obtained military-grade equipment including artillery and anti-tank weapons. In mid-June, they launched a blistering attack against the Serb forces surrounding Sarajevo, making significant gains. Taken aback by the ferocity of the Bosniak offensive, the Serbs continued with their plan. They began shelling Srebrenica again on July 6 and over the next three days closed in on the enclave. On July 8th, the Serbs were pushing forward, the Dutch and Muslim defenses had been overrun, and the fall of Srebrenica was imminent. Bosnian President Alija Izetbegovic wrote the British Prime Minister on July 9th, requesting immediate help in Srebrenica. He warned John Major the Serbs had launched a massive mechanized infantry attack on the enclave, and the UN peacekeepers were either unwilling or unable to protect the city. More than 60,000 civilians, predominantly women, children, and the elderly, have found themselves in life-threatening danger, wrote the president. I urge you to prevent new acts of terrorism and genocide against the civilian population of Srebrenica. Later that day, Yasushi Akashi summoned British General Rupert Smith and French General Bernard Janvier to discuss the situation in Srebrenica. Rupert Smith wanted to use force against the Serbs to protect Srebrenica. However, Bernard Janvier disagreed, saying the UN should not impose its will on the Serbs. 
There was some speculation at the time that Jean Vierre had made a deal with Serb commander Radko Mladic not to use airstrikes if the Serbs did not harm UN hostages. Whether that was true or not, Yasushi Akashi decided to go with Jean Vierre's assessment, later stating he did not believe air power was necessary. Meanwhile, those who could flee Srebrenica did so as the Serbs intensified their artillery barrage. They overran another UN post, taking more Dutch soldiers hostage. The next day, July 10th, the Dutch commander called for airstrikes as Serb forces amassed on the hills leading into the enclave. But he was overruled by French general Bernard Janvier. Later that day, the Dutch called for another airstrike and this time, Janvier approved it. But he said they would have to wait until the next morning. The next morning, the Dutch commander at Srebrenica was informed his airstrike request had been denied. It turns out he had filed it improperly and would have to resubmit it. By the time a new request was filed, the warplanes, which had been circling in the air for over an hour, were out of fuel and had to return to base in Italy. When they were finally refueled and ready to go, General Jean Vier again hesitated to approve the airstrikes. When he finally did approve them, nearly four hours had passed. Two Dutch warplanes attacked and destroyed two Serb tanks near Srebrenica. A third strike was forthcoming but was called off when the Serbs threatened to kill their Dutch hostages. It did not matter anyway because by now it was too late. The Serbs were on the verge of taking Srebrenica. While all this was going on, 20,000 Muslim refugees were fleeing for another UN base at Potocari, about three miles north of Srebrenica. With no NATO airstrikes, no Nasser Orich, and a depleted Dutch peacekeeping force, Srebrenica was doomed. The Serbs conquered it on July 11, 1995. Bosnian Serb troops, led by their commander, Ratko Mladic, entered Srebrenica and took a victory tour. Mladic proudly declared his intention to take revenge on the Turks. But when the cameras were rolling, Radko Mladic passed out candy to the children and chatted with the gathered Bosniak refugees. He assured them no harm would come if they followed orders. He said the women, elderly, and children could leave, but the men and boys had to stay behind for questioning. As the city fell, thousands of refugees attempted to board buses leaving Srebrenica. The Serbs detained all males between the ages of 12 and 77. Only women, the very young and the very old, were allowed to board the buses. The Muslim defenders of Srebrenica and 12,000 Bosniak men fled the enclave. Their only hope was to reach Tuzla, the nearest Muslim stronghold over 40 miles away. But as they fled, the Serbs began shelling the mountains, killing hundreds at a time. Hundreds more were captured by Serb patrols and returned to Srebrenica. Back in Srebrenica, the Serbs were now going door to door. As they entered the houses, men and boys were detained, though some were killed on the spot. The women were often beaten and raped, and some of them were also killed on the spot. However, most of the women were sent to the buses, leaving the enclave. By the next day, most of the enclave had been ethnically cleansed, though a few buses were still arriving to carry the remaining refugees away. 
hundreds of Bosniak men and boys were being held in warehouses and trucks. About a thousand were taken from Srebrenica to a schoolhouse in Karakai, about 20 miles away. The Serbs demanded the Dutch soldiers expel 5,000 refugees holed up in their base in Srebrenica, and the Dutch complied. On the morning of July 13, 1995, the systematic killings began. The captive men and boys were not taken to prison camps to die slowly through torture and malnutrition. Instead, they were taken to open meadows and soccer fields and empty warehouses. Some were bound, forced to lay down, and methodically shot in the head. Some were lined up against walls and sprayed with machine gun fire. Some were packed into warehouses while grenades were thrown inside. Those at the schoolhouse in Karakai were led into the schoolyard and gunned down. By July 16, 1995, nearly 8,000 Bosniak men and boys had been killed. Jepa Falls to the Serbs While some Serbs were committing genocide in Srebrenica, other Serbs were bombarding Jepa, another Muslim enclave, 15 miles south. Just like Srebrenica, Jepa was a designated UN safe area. And just like Srebrenica, the Serbs were making a mockery of that term. On July 12, 1995, the day after Srebrenica fell, Serb leader Radovan Karadzic warned the Bosnian defenders of Jepa to lay down their arms and surrender. Meanwhile, U.S. officials were predicting Jepa would fall within a day. They were wrong. It fell within a week. Everyone knew the UN was powerless to stop the Serbs. Bosnian government officials denounced the UN, calling on the organization to take serious action against the aggressors. Before the war, Jepa was a small village, predominantly Muslim, with a population of less than 500. Like Srebrenica, it had the unfortunate luck of being in eastern Bosnia where the Serbs planned to create their superstate. By the summer of 1995, however, it held over 16,000 refugees. As it became clear that Jepa would fall, France demanded force be used to stop the Serbs and re-establish Srebrenica as a safe zone. Neither the U.S. nor the U.K. were willing to do that, though they were not yet aware of the massacres at Srebrenica. Back in Washington, D.C., President Clinton's Republican opponents criticized his lack of action in Bosnia. Senator Bob Dole, who had shown concern about the Balkans for years, demanded the arms embargo be lifted. On July 17th, Jepa's Bosnian Muslim defenders turned back a Serb assault. This was astonishing considering the Bosniaks were outgunned and outmanned. But it only delayed the inevitable. The situation was growing desperate. The Bosniak defenders threatened to take the Ukrainian UN peacekeepers hostage if NATO did not send warplanes. The Serbs replied they would kill their UN hostages if NATO did send warplanes. They needn't have worried. The United Nations had written off Jeppa, stating it could not be defended. The UN had stopped trying and had stopped pretending to look like they were trying. July 18, 1995, and the Serbs were less than a kilometer from Jeppa. By this time, thousands of refugees from Srebrenica were arriving in Tuzla. They told stories of mass executions at the fallen enclave. 
As these stories spread, Bosnian President Aliyah Izetbegovic was growing frantic. He scrambled to negotiate a surrender of Jeppa, but Radovan Karadzic refused to talk to him. When asked to explain why he was willing to give up Jeppa, the president was straightforward. This is ethnic cleansing, he conceded, but ethnic cleansing is in a way better than ethnic murder. On July 19, 1995, Jeppa surrendered to the Serbs. Even though Jeppa was a defeat, it still had its hero. Colonel Avdo Palic was the commander of the Muslim defenders of Jeppa. He led the stubborn Muslim defense that held off the Serbs for nearly a week. But Avdo Palic had reason to be stubborn as his wife and children were with him in Jeppa. Having heard the stories of the fate of the men in Srebrenica, he was determined to give his men a fighting chance at survival. Avdo Palic, along with a local imam and a village official, negotiated the surrender of Jeppa with Radko Mladic. The Muslim commander drew the negotiations out for five days, even after the Serbs had already begun occupying Jeppa. Those five days gave his men enough time to slip out of Jeppa and flee through the wooded hills to Tuzla or other Muslim enclaves. This prevented Jeppa from becoming another Srebrenica. When the Serbs realized they'd been fooled, they arrested Palic and the others with him. They were taken to a prison camp and never seen again. Thirteen years later, in 2008, a mass grave in Republika Srpska was unearthed. From amongst the many bodies pulled from this grave, DNA analysis positively identified one of them as Colonel Avdo Palic. Bihać As discussed in the previous episode, the Bosnian Serbs had developed a plan to bring the war to a swift end. This plan included capturing Srebrenica, Jepa, Garajde, and Sarajevo in the east, as well as Bihać in the west. Despite the setback in Sarajevo, everything had been going according to plan so far for the Serbs. They had taken Srebrenica and Jepa with relative ease. Bihać was a special case. Located near the border of Bosnia and Croatia, Bosniaks, Croats, and Serbs had been fighting over this enclave for years. Not just Bosnian Croats, but also Croats from Croatia. Not just Bosnian Serbs, but also Croatian Serbs. Not just Bosnian Muslims, but also rebel Muslims who sided with the Serbs. The Bosnian government forces in Bihać were in an impossible situation and surrounded by enemies on all sides. They faced attacks from the Bosnian Serbs to the east, Croatian Serbs to the west, and rebel Muslims to the north. But the Bosniaks were not helpless. Despite their lack of heavy weapons, they had become a formidable force. This again fueled rumors that they had received outside training, possibly from the United States. Or their success may have been the result of three years of bitter experience. Whatever the case, the intense fighting made it impossible for UN aid convoys to reach Bihać. By the summer of 1995, the 200,000 Muslim refugees in Bihać were facing starvation. A key moment came on July 22, 1995, when Bosnian President Aliyah Izetbegovic and Croatian President Franjo Tuđman signed the split agreement. 
The split agreement, signed in the Croatian coastal city of Split, was a mutual defense pact between Croatia and Bosnia. It allowed Bosnian and Croatian forces to coordinate their attacks on the Serbs. It also allowed Croatian forces to cross the border into Bosnia, primarily to relieve the pressure on Bihać. From this agreement came a cascade of events. First came Operation Storm, a tremendous Croatian offensive to retake territory the Serbs held in eastern Croatia, bordering Bosnia. In late July, the Croatian army began shelling Kanin, the Croatian Serb capital in the south. Croatia then moved its forces east to cut off communications and supplies between the Serbs in the south in Kanin and the Serbs in the north in Bihać. The Croats also captured two towns near Bihać, increasing the pressure on the Serb forces in that area. During the first four days of August, Croatia brought nearly 100,000 soldiers to its eastern border with Bosnia. Meanwhile, the U.S. government was getting frustrated with the way things were going. For years, the U.S. had muddled through the Bosnian War, making concessions to Slobodan Milosevic and the Bosnian Serbs just to get them to the negotiating table. And it had brought nothing in return. The fall of Srebrenica and Jepa, not to mention the rumors of massive atrocities, were embarrassing the U.N., the U.S., and NATO. American diplomats in the Croatian capital of Zagreb did not try to stop the Croatian offensive. They simply urged the Croats to use restraint and avoid civilian casualties. While this was not exactly a green light for war, the implication was understood. It was time to put pressure on the Serbs. The Croats and the Serbs both sent token diplomats to meet with UN representatives, but neither side wanted to talk. On Friday, August 4, 1995, Croatia launched an all-out assault on the Serbs. They bombarded Kanin with over a thousand shells while tens of thousands of Croatian troops moved in. To the north, thousands of Croatian soldiers joined up with the Bosniak forces at Bihać. This allowed the Muslims to punch through the Serb lines surrounding the enclave. The next day, those same Bosnian Muslim forces from Bihać continued south and linked up with the Croatian forces descending on Kanin. This proved to be too much for the Croatian Serbs. By the end of the day, thousands of Serb refugees were fleeing Kanin for Banja Luka and other Bosnian Serb strongholds. After more than three years, the siege of Bihać was broken. Balkan Politics The Serbs had now lost their capital in Croatia and any chance of taking Bihać. They still had Srebrenica and Jepa, but Sarajevo was looking unlikely. The Bosnian government forces there were not backing down. Radovan Karadzic, the president of Republika Srpska, pinned the blame on commander Ratko Mladic and tried to fire him as the Bosnian Serb general. But this was more about politics than military necessity. Amongst the Serbs, Mladic was very popular while Karadzic was losing steam. Mladic's plan to wrap up the war by year's end was looking less likely every day. By the middle of August, Croatia had retaken almost all of its land from the Croatian Serbs. The only part left was a small holdout bordering Serbia. This led to a quarter of a million Croatian Serb refugees flooding into Bosnia and Serbia. 
There were also political tensions within the Bosnian government. President Izet Begovic, having been repeatedly led down by the UN and the West, had begun seeking help from various Muslim nations. This included Turkey, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and Jordan. His relationship with these other Muslim countries led to accusations that Izet Begovic wanted Bosnia to become an Islamic state. Opposite him was Bosnian Prime Minister Haris Selajic. Selajic advocated for a secular government based upon a Western model. Haris Selajic threatened to resign when President Izet Begovic chose Mohamed Sakrabi as his foreign minister. Sakrabi came from a well-educated religious family and was a longtime rival of Selajic. While the politicians were bickering, the war dragged on and the Bosnian Serbs renewed their efforts to capture the final Muslim enclave in the East, Garajde. In the next episode, we'll discuss how the Bosnian War came to an end. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, iPhone, iPad, iPod, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you use Android, Windows, or any non-Apple device, visit patreon.com slash Islamic History. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. But overall, it was just that the Muslim empire had grown too fast, too quickly, and the Muslims had not established or created the proper infrastructure to meet the growing needs of a growing empire. Eventually, however, a group of disgruntled men attacked Uthman ibn Affan in Medina, killing him and, and severely injuring his wife. Many of these people who attacked and killed Uthman also advocated for yet another companion named Ali ibn Abi Talib to become the next caliph. Ali ibn Abi Talib also was Prophet Muhammad wasallam's cousin. However, the death and the killing and the assassination of the caliph by other Muslims made many people turn against Ali, especially since he was being supported by the same people who had killed Uthman ibn Affan. So there were many prominent Muslims who refused to recognize Ali as caliph, particularly Aisha ibn Abi Bakr, who was the prophet's widow, 
and Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan, who was related to Uthman and was also the governor of Syria. Muawiyah, as I mentioned, was Uthman's cousin, therefore he was also from the Umayyad clan. He was suspicious of Ali suddenly being elevated and promoted as the caliph, and he refused to pledge allegiance. Aisha also refused to pledge allegiance, both of them demanding that Ali turn over those people who were responsible for Uthman's death. Ali said he couldn't do that until he had the full support of the empire, and that's where the impasse began. Aisha uh, led a group of people to invade Basra and remove Ali's governor. Ali then responded by taking an army of his own to Basra, and this ultimately led to the Battle of the Camel, the first true battle between Muslims. Ali won the battle. Aisha did survive. However, with this first battle between Muslims, the damage was severely done, and the Muslim world was forever fractured in many different ways. Ali won the battle, but his reputation was also tarnished because he fought the Prophet's wife. Ali f realized that he could not stay in the Hijaz, that is Medina, which had been the capital of the Muslim world since the time of Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So he moved his capital to Kufa, which is in Iraq, and he began to prepare to battle Muawiyah, who was, of course, the governor of Syria. After a series of battles and negotiations and discussions and counter-rebellions, Muawiyah ultimately began to gain the upper hand. Unlike Muawiyah, Ali also had to deal with a group of people known as the Khawarij. Muawiyah, as the governor of Syria, held a firm control over Syria. Syria was well-managed. Syria had been under the Roman Empire. They were used to a bureaucracy and a government, and Muawiyah fit in very well. And he was, despite his many flaws, he was a very good administrator. Ali was ruling over rough-and-tumble Iraq and, and Syria, which had been under the Persian dynasty for so long, and he just did not command the same respect that Muawiyah did. And the area that Ali was ruling over was much more, much more difficult to control, much more difficult to contain. So Ali had to deal with people who felt within his own borders, who felt that he should not have been the leader and that he was actually causing harm to the Muslim world, Muawiyah did not really have to deal with that. So Ali was fighting an enemy within, as well as Muawiyah, his enemy without. In any case, the Khawarij believed that all Muslim leaders of their time had gone astray and they needed to be removed, even if that meant doing it violently. Most of these Khawarij were in Iraq and Persia, so as we mentioned, it was more of a problem for Ali than it was for Muawiyah. After five years of fighting against Ali, a group of Khawarij finally managed, managed to assassinate Ali. With Ali now dead, Muawiyah eventually assumes the caliphate and subdues or makes peace with Ali's remaining supporters. <laughs> 